I have the privilege of sharing uh, um, our gospel passage with you today. It is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Um, if you're using your Pew Bible, it is page 1129, and it should also be on the screens behind me if you want to follow along there. Um, one thing I wanted to share very quickly before I read this is that it's just something that struck me while I was preparing to, to, to read this for you, um, probably because I'm not very confident standing in front of people. This stuck out to me, but there are... Uh, Three very encouraging moments of confidence thread through this passage that I'd, I'd like you to look for. Um, Christ's response to his mother, his mother's response to the servants, and ultimately the servant that agreed to carry what was water to his master or his boss. Well, uh, he was praying that it was, they would become wine. Um, the reason those stuck out to me is that when we know our purpose and when we know who sent us, we can approach our calling boldly and confidently. Um, whether it's like Christ who knows the outcome of the situation, whether it's like his mother who had absolute confidence in a positive outcome, or like the servant who just had confidence in the people that sent him. And for me, I need to be reminded of that every day. Uh, so starting in, in verse 1, if, if all of those that can stand would stand with me while I read. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone who serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. May God help us understand his word. We have been studying the gospel according to John just for a short time, but... Just to, to remind you that we said this was not a biography of Jesus. Not, it's not like the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are laid out relatively following the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. John does not follow that particular uh, pattern because he's not writing a bi- biography or a history book. He is making an argument. We know it's an argument because he tells us it's an argument. In the 20th chapter, uh, he says this in verse 30. He says, if I wrote down all the things that Jesus said and did, it would fill up all the books of all the libraries of the world. But I write these, he's talking about these narratives, these stories, this teaching, the account of these miracles. There are seven uh, miracles and seven narratives. He, he includes them because he says in verse 31, 
in order that you might believe. That is, I'm going to argue the reasons why you ought to believe in this Jesus, the Son of God. So we have encouraged you on Sunday mornings to keep coming so that you can come and see. Hear the argument yourself. Examine the evidence. We believe that Christianity is a reasonable faith. It's not a blind faith. You come here, you hear the reasons, you see if it matches both your experience and your own understanding, seeing it from his perspective as he reveals it, and then decide for yourself. The the metaphor I've been using is try it on. See if it fits. But see if the real story of Jesus, the real Jesus fits. Not the one that has been maybe told you, maybe you've learned, maybe you've received, but is it the one that he has revealed about himself? And so I'm asking you to keep coming to find out for yourself and see if it's true. But if it is true, you have to listen to Mary. Do you hear what Mary said? Do whatever he says. That is, if he he really is who he says he is, it's not like being encounter someone off the street. You have to deal with this guy. If he really is the Son of God who died uh, for sinners in order to save them from the penalty of those sins, then you have to deal with him. Because he's still alive, and that's what he said. All right, with that in mind, I've got a question for you. It's not rhetorical. So I'm hoping someone knows the answer and none of the staff can answer because I've already asked them. They didn't do so well, so we'll see how you do. (laughs) February 3rd, 1959 was a very historic day in America. Can you tell me what happened on February 3rd, 1959? You got to do it a lot louder than that. Nah, not February 3rd. Good guess, though. There you go. It's the day the music died. At least according to Don McLaren, 1971, Miss American Pie. Thank you, George. It was the day that Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P., Richardson, the big bopper, all got onto a small plane because they got tired of riding on a bus, paid a little extra money so they could get to the next town sooner so they could go to sleep. And the plane crashed. And Don McLaren was 13 years old. And so when he was a little older, he's going to write us tune about the day that the music died, that the joy ran out the day the party died. You see, he recognized something that's true that sometimes maybe we don't recognize or maybe we do. That no matter what we put our joy in, no matter what we get joy from, no matter who that is, it runs out. It's fleeting. If you are blessed with a marriage, a good marriage that lasts 40, 50, 60 years. It's a long, good marriage with lots of joys. But at some point, she or he will die. 
and the joy will run out. Maybe it's in a job that has given you great career recognition, maybe great joy in accomplishing and making something, either with your hands or your mind. And then they come in one day and say, hey, your job is over because either the contract or we're downsizing and you're, you're costing us too much. Party stops. The joy ends. Or maybe you've been raising your kids and it didn't turn out the way you had hoped. When you open the albums and see the pictures of your children, it even reminds you of the joy you once had. But it is all gone. Because the truth is, if we're willing for a moment to peel the veneer of our lives back, we see that no matter where our joys are, it's fleeting. It ends. The wine runs out. That's what Mary is saying. When Mary goes to Jesus, she's not saying, hey, guys, we just need to go back to the convenience store and get some more. She's not talking about an inconvenience. She's talking about a societal, cultural, real-life human problem. Joy has run out. The party is over. And I just want you to know, having said that, it sounds like a real downer. You were built for joy. You were made as a human being to enjoy things, to rejoice over, to have joy. That's the way you were created. That's why when you taste it, it's so good. And when it's gone, when it's left you, when you don't have it, it proves something too, that you miss it, that you want it. So whether you've got it or you don't have it, we're all in the same boat. It both proves something to us, that we were built for joy. And yet, in this life, it is so fleeting. Jesus recognizes this. He's in another chapter later, one of the things that you'll learn about the Gospel of John, it's not like the other Gospels in that it's fairly laid out evenly through his life. Not so much uh, here in John. It's weighted uh, toward the last a few weeks of his life. Toward the, chapter 16, he's toward the end of his life. He's been telling his disciples, I'm going to leave you. Can you imagine the joy lost their feeling? This person, they have given everything up. They've left the boats. They've left their jobs. They've left, in a lot of cases, even their families to follow Jesus. And the teacher says, I'm leaving you. Imagine the loss of joy that they must be feeling. In fact, he says in chapter 16, I know you're sorrowful. But I'm coming back. And when I come back, I will give you a joy that no one can take away and that lasts. Do you hear that? That promise, that beautiful promise that there's going to be a joy that no one can take away, that no death, 
No loss of job, no economy, no political system, no situation can ever destroy or take away from you. That's the point. That John is trying to make an argument for Jesus from joy. Next week we'll do that same thing. He's going to make an argument for Jesus instead of from joy, from guilt, one of our other human problems. So this morning, briefly, I just want you to listen to this argument. It only really has two points. And the first one is there's a problem. And in order to see a solution, we have to see the problem. In order to hear the good news, we have to be willing and open to hear the bad news, to receive the bad news. And of all places where the bad news is delivered is on probably the best day of this couple's life, their wedding. It's a wedding in Cana. Weddings in the ancient world, particularly in the Jewish world, are not like the American wedding. Today, you might at most have to give up a day to attend someone else's wedding. In the ancient world, particularly the Jewish world, a wedding is at least a week long. That's why it says the third day. This wedding has been going on in verse 1 for a while. And probably has got a while to go. Wealthy people in the ancient world would invite you to the wedding and it would be a month long. You would bring a temporary domicile. You would build it on the outskirts of wherever this wedding is going to transpire, typically around a town or a city. And you would live there and every day you would be attending another activity of this family. And that's why it's not the the bride's family who paid for this or the groom's family who paid for this. Everybody paid for this. Because it's incredibly expensive. The most expensive thing to do for these weddings in the ancient world was feed all your guests. You see in verses 1 and 2 that Mary is invited, Jesus is invited, his disciples have been invited, probably the whole region, at least the area around Cana, and maybe even a lot of the villages have been invited. This is probably the biggest event in the life of most of these people will ever have. And that's why they're all coming. And what their expectation is, is that they're going to have enough food and they're going to have enough wine. In fact, the Jews allowed you to sue the host if he did not have enough wine. Not about food, but about the wine. This beautiful wedding in three days dissolved into a nightmare. Do you see that in verse 3? Everybody's there. Everybody's been there a while. And when the wine ran out, it's not an inconvenience. It's a social disaster. It's shame and disgrace. In fact, if this had not been remediated, of course they could face lawsuit. But more importantly, this whole region would know 
the shame of this couple and the greatest day of their lives will become their worst day of their lives because their entire lives will be defined by running out of wine. I'm just trying to get you to feel the weight of what was a joyous moment became a disaster because the joy ran out. What do you mean? Is this an overdramatization? Is this Bruce just again being overdramatic? I've been known so. Mary's is the one who gets to announce this. She only shows up twice in the Gospel of John. In other Gospels, she shows up more frequently, but in the Gospel of John, she only shows up twice. Here and in John 19 when Jesus is on the cross. And therefore, when she shows up, it's important. And I think it's important for this particular announcement because of her own wedding. We tend to forget, because Jesus is the child, that she is pregnant before they get married. And therefore, her own wedding is not something they're inviting the whole town to. It's not someone that that they have to worry about. We've got to feed the neighbors and make sure that they have enough wine for the party. Because quite frankly, they want to do this quietly. In fact, it says that. And so she doesn't want her own wedding to be remembered the way she remembers hers. And so she goes to Jesus, her own son. I don't believe she sees him yet as he truly is. But she knows enough about Jesus that she knows he can do something about it. Now, whether she thinks he's got this secret treasure chest and that somebody could go down to the convenience store, I don't think so. I think he's done other miracles. This just says this is the first miracle in Cana, in Galilee. It doesn't say that it's the first miracle he ever did. Somewhere she's gotten an understanding that Jesus can do something about this or she would have never asked him to do something about this. In the Bible, wine symbolizes joy. Where do you get that, Bruce? Psalm 104, wine gladdens the heart of man. Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts. Come and do what? Get some water? No. Come, buy wine without money. Judges 9, shall I leave my wine that cheers the heart of God and men? It becomes symbolic of this whole idea where by the time that Jesus walks on the earth, the rabbis had a saying, where there is no wine, there is no joy. That's all behind Mary's statement. They have no wine. They have no joy. Ernest Hemingway, the original most famous man in the world, not Dos Equis, he lived the life that a lot of people would dream over. Great accolades. But in the end of his life, when the joy ran out, he commits suicide. The joy runs out for everyone. There's not a person in this room that joy doesn't run out from. You might be young enough that you have not yet experienced the loss of joy. That only means you're too young. That does not mean you won't lose joy. That's what one of the things we all have in common together. 
Even Disney World gets old. Even if that's never happened to you, trust me, it will. Things and people that bring us joy run out. What do you do when you lose joy? Everyone does and everyone responds. But what do you do when the joy runs out? There are really only four things you can do. And four solutions that people have gravitated toward. It's not, it's not like there's more. The first one is you, you could blame the thing itself that has run out of joy. That which produced the joy for you and when it's gone, you blame it. It could be a person who, who brought you joy for many, many years. But they don't love you anymore or they've left you. And so you blame them. So what's the, what's the solution? Go get somebody new. Go get something new. That's the, that's the solution to when you blame the person or the thing. Or maybe your solution is to blame yourself. And there's a lot of people who do that. So what do you do when you're to blame? You try harder. You get better. You work harder. The third one is to blame the universe. You know this one. Okay, sirrah, sirrah, it's just the way it is. And you become a cynic. And the solution is no longer be optimistic, but be cynical. And just expect what we get. The last one, and I think this is the most accurate one, is blame your separation from God. We have a joy shortage because we have a relationship problem. Because we are not relating to our Creator the way we were designed, joy just cannot be found in this world. That's what C.S. Lewis is getting at. When he says that if you have a desire and there's no satisfaction that lasts or truly satisfies, it must mean you were meant for a different world. And he says, because of that, all of the joys that you have, all of the satisfaction you get in this world are mere pointers to the ultimate satisfaction and the ultimate joy. That is, it does have a purpose, but it finds its purpose in that which can bring ultimate joy, lasting joy. What, what, John, what Jesus said in John 16, I'm leaving you now, but I'm coming back. And when I come back with you, I'll bring a joy that no one can take away that will last. That's what C.S. Lewis is trying to communicate to us and what's happening at this wedding. Because the problem with joy is that it's fleeting. For some of you, it's been so long since you have been happy, you don't think you can ever be happy. Can I, can I just take just a half a second here? One of the charges against Christianity is that if you become a Christian, if you become a follower of Jesus, if you become a committed person... It's a joy killer. All your joys are taken away from you. And it's one of the reasons I think people reject Christianity. Because they hear Christians say, you got to give that up. you got to give that up. you got to do this. You, we, we break out our list. Okay, now you've done the hard work of becoming a Christian. Now here the real hard work starts. 
I just want you to hear that the first miracle that is recorded for us by John is to take 180 gallons of water and turn it into the best wine they have ever tasted at a party. Does that sound like a joy killer to me? Do you? No. And therefore, you and I have to admit something, if that's true. Then either Christianity has been misrepresented to us, or we have misrepresented Christianity to others. If people are walking around, if you are walking around thinking that following Jesus is a joy killer, it is because someone has misrepresented Jesus to you, or because you have misrepresented Jesus to others. Now the solution is very easy. It's in verse 4. And you'd have to pick out the code words that he's using here because it's an odd response to her request. They've run out of wine. Do something, Jesus. And he says, woman, he's talking to his mother, what does this have to do with me? And then here's his answer. My hour has not yet come. First, I want you to understand, when he's talking to his mother this way, he's not being mean-spirited. He's not doing what we do. Mom comes in and says, take out the trash. And you say, Mom! That's not what he's doing. When your uh, a mother says, you've got responsibilities, you say, Mother! That's not what he's doing. He's saying, woman, he's putting some distance between her request for physical wine... To his purpose, because he's going to do seven miracles recorded here in John, and every one of them are going to point to the same thing, to his purpose, why he came into this world to seek and to save the lost. How? He tells you, my hour has not yet come. In the Gospel of John, whenever John uses our, my hour, when he's quoting Jesus, it is referring to that moment on the cross where he dies for sinners in their place, in their stead, to, to take on the penalty of sin for them. That's what he's doing there. And so even though Mary doesn't under, fully understand who Jesus is or what Jesus has come to do, her request for a physical change of healing the brokenness of this wedding, he's willing to do that as long as everybody understands that him doing that is pointing toward his sacrifice on the cross. And you say, well, how do you know they got it? How do you, how do you know that? He, he does one more thing. Obviously, he could have turned anything into wine. Can we at least admit that? If he takes water and turns it into wine, it could have been anything. He asked for these six large jugs, containers, that are used for a specific purpose in that household and in worship. These jars hold between 20 and 30 gallons of water, but not just any kind of water, but water that is specifically used for a purpose, purification. The The groom and the bride, before they would have been married, would have had to bathe in that water for purification for the wedding. Not only is that true, but every Sabbath day, or at least every major holy day, like the Day of Atonement, 
the whole family would have used these jars in order to wash themselves, or at least the priest, it's going to represent them, who's going to go into the temple. So it's Jesus who is connecting this miracle of turning water into wine to his death. And he's saying, just as these jars pointed to purification, my death points to your purification. Not mine, I'm already pure. Jesus, Jesus is already pure. There's nothing wrong with him. He who knew no sin became sin. So on the cross, he becomes our impurity so that we can become pure. Just as the pointers of washing in those jars would have been. And therefore, lasting joy... Lasting joy comes from your ability, well, his ability, but your endeavor to see that that's what he does for you. It takes all of your joys and says, hey, don't have joy. Just understand their appetizers. He's begging us not to turn our appetizers into a meal. When was the last time you've been at a restaurant? You, you go to Fridays and have appetizers. The plate is this huge. You could, you could literally go to some restaurants and get the food and not need another part of any meal. You could go right to dessert. Why? Because our culture has turned appetizers into the meal. We have turned our small joys. We have turned the joys of our life that were meant to point to this one in its place. And Jesus is saying, if you want your joy to last, make me the main course. How do you do that? Let me just give you this. ACT. It's easy to remember. You just break it down. A. You got to admit, there's something wrong here. My joys don't last. My life is not perfect. Things are not right. You got to begin to admit that. that. That's what Mary's doing here. Mary's saying, they're out of wine. Jesus, do something. Which brings you to see, you got to confess what he did. Yes, he turned water into wine and gave the best wine. And we know that because that's what the, the master of the feast said. He says, hey, look, guys, nobody does this. He goes to the bridegroom and says, nobody throws a party this way. Everybody who throws a party goes gets the boons, goes get the boons far and put it in the closet. You break out the Californian Napa Valley wine. And you give it to them while their palates are still alive. And once after a few days, they have drowned their palates in the good stuff. They don't have any taste buds left. So you can bring out the Boone's Farm. That's the way every party is supposed to work. You've reversed it. In comparison to, uh, uh, to what Jesus gives in replacement, it's the best wine. Who does that at a party? That's Jesus' point is that if you will put your faith in me, if you will confess that I died on the cross for you, I'm not saying in an historical admission, but he did it for me. Then all your other joys will be appetizers. You won't have to hold on to them with a grip of life. 
because you're afraid that you're going to lose them. Because you still have the one joy they all point to. The last is trust. Trust in what he had done for you was for you. Even if there was no other Christian on the face of the planet, he did it for you. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. And so if the, the, the music folks can make their way up here. I just want to show you how the power of the cross, just on the page four of your worship guide, does that very thing. Because I think you can do it with the best songs. There's an admission here. Oh, to see the dawn of darkest day. Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to the cross. You see, he's, he's admitting there's something wrong. Do you see that? Can you admit that? Is something's wrong in your world? Something's wrong in your life? The joys just don't seem to last. Look at the confession. The second verse. This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame. Bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Look at the trust. Way down in the second to the last verse. Oh, to see my name written in his wounds. For through your suffering, I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live. Do you hear it? He's now living. Of course, these are the Gettys and, and Stuart Townsend. They're, they're trying to say, now we can live in light of that reality. That's the same thing as Mary telling you it. When Jesus does this, trust Him. Do all that He says. Do what He tells you. There's an implication for trusting Jesus. And that is that we follow Him. Some of you aren't ready to do that. This whole idea of act, that's foreign to you. That's okay. Keep coming. Keep asking. Keep questioning. In a few weeks, we hope to give you a venue outside of here uh, right after this service to continue having discussions Ask your questions. Others of you, you're Christians, you're followers of Jesus, but that does not mean you do not rely on your joys. And you've been eating the appetizers, you've been drinking, you've been sipping the bad wine as if it was the good wine. And Jesus is just asking you, look, I'm giving you the best. Follow me. So whether you're following Jesus or you're not following Jesus, we go through the same process. We admit something wrong. We confess what He's done. And we trust that He did it for us. And that changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this truth, this gospel. And I pray as a church that we can take this into our hearts and see that You're not a joy killer. You're a joy maker. And that you fill us up with joy that cannot diminish, cannot fade, cannot be taken if we trust in you. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we take that very message into the four corners of our city. And that we see even our guests that will be here at the end of the month. That the reason we want them with us is because we want to offer this joy in Jesus. And that's what compels us to provide them a home 
for a week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.